production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Kate Langbrook is an entertainer, writer and comedian. She's a signature mix of high seriousness, sweeping perspective and bellyaching laughs. I adore this woman so much and when the opportunity came up to have her on the podcast again, I jumped at the chance. Kate reminds us to bear witness to the fleeting experience we call life. This conversation with Kate traverses many realms. Having a dream and living it, the utter chaos of adapting to a new life overseas and the almighty power of love. If you persist and you reject the resistance or you keep pushing against the resistance, eventually the universe gives you assistance. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Kate Langbrook is the author of Ciao Bella, Six Take Italy, her love letter to Bologna and her family. A mighty, intelligent force of nature, Kate Langbrook is a true blessing on this earth. This conversation was an honour and a powerful reminder of the impermanence of everything and the importance of every day. Kate Langbrook, firstly, I want to say it's an absolute honour to have you on A Life of Greatness again. So much has taken place in your life. It's never a dull moment. I want to go back to 2016 when you had this dream to live Uh in Italy. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, Sarah, I can't really even remember how it came about. Um, it was it was a moment that Peter, my husband, and I sort of arrived at at the same time. I think we were we'd been to Italy. I had only been to Italy for the first time. I think in twenty fifteen or uh, anyway, close, like not long ago. It wasn't as though I was one of those people that Italy is my country. Oh, if I ever retire, <laughs> I wasn't one of those people. I'd never been to Italy, and the first time we went, we were astounded by it because it's such a cliche. Mm. It's not just a cliche; it's a cliche upon cliche. It's what the Leaning Tower of Pisa is made out of cliches. It's why it's got the bend in it. Um, But I remember sitting by the pool at this villa that we'd rented with Peter. Of course, we were having an Aperol spritz. (laughs) And and I remember saying to him, oh, you can totally understand why people do that I'm going to live in Italy thing. And he was like, yeah, it's amazing. And from that point, uh, that must have been the little 
the planting of the seed that grew and then became the beanstalk and Jack escaped up the beanstalk. But uh, that makes it sound much simpler than it was. Yes. Along the way was because, you know, I had the world's best job and yeah. I loved Husey and it was very hard to extricate yourself from doing um drive time radio when the show is going well yes of course <laughs> when the show's not going well I gather that they have a number of ways of encouraging you out the door but um it was just uh, so Peter was like you'll never stop working and I'm like I will I will I really I will you watch me and I did. It was very hard to extricate ourselves. So we jumped from the station that we were at um, to an, to uh, another station that would give us a year um, and that to SEA. Yeah. And then uh, Husey and Gemma, our boss, convinced me to do the first six months from Italy as well. And I was like, what? Now, of course, we're doing this remotely. Yeah. This seems perfectly normal. I can assure you in at the end of 2018 when um, we told people that this is what we're going to be doing, nobody thought it was normal. <laughs> They're like, you're going to do your Australian drive radio show from Italy? What? <laughs> so, and I did for six months. How did you find it doing that? Remotely, uh, it was because Hugh had um, travelled a lot and always had done a lot of stand up, and was often in various places around Australia. We had done the show separately, yes, very often, so we were very comfortable with it. But Sarah, what was interesting was that it had always been him who was away, yeah. or mostly him who was away. Um, this time it was me who was away and I tell you what, it's really restful <laughs> being the person that can't go into a meeting afterwards and the person, like it's really incredibly easy compared yes. to being there in the flesh. Not that it was difficult being there in the flesh, but you really tools down the second the show's over. And obviously you have your book, Chow Bella, which is an unbelievable read. It really is. It's phenomenal. And it goes through a lot of your time, obviously, in Italy a bit before that mm-hmm. and everything that took place. You have a big family. There's four kids and you and Peter and you tell this beautiful story in the book and it's when you arrive at the hotel in Italy, it's 42 degrees and there's problems with your room, aircon's not working, all this kind yes, of stuff yes. happens. Italy, <laughs> Italy. You know. And there's a beautiful line that you say, just as things seem hopeless and lost, magic happens. And mm. I like I totally understand how that is. I feel like that happens to me every second week where you think, mm, Oh, mm, this mm, is mm. this is the this is the beginning of the end. But then mm. it's not the beginning <laughs> of the end. <laughs> and, yes. And something yes. phenomenal happens. How do you find that kind of inner faith and that belief that that magic will appear? Wow. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I have always been, uh, well, not always probably, but I have a lot of faith. I have just as a, as, as a person, I have a lot of faith. I have 
a lot of faith that the universe or whatever it is, circumstances or whatever, will, if I jump, the universe will slide out a, a, a tabletop and catch me. Yeah. Hopefully a soft tabletop, but sometimes it's a hard landing on marble, but it's still a shelf, you know. Um, but Italy constantly taught us that lesson. And maybe because it's a land of faith, mm. you know. I mean, it's full of churches now that nobody yes. seems to go to, but they, it's still in the DNA, yes. you know. It's still you walk down a little laneway and there's a statue of the Madonna and someone's put flowers on it at 7 o'clock in the morning. Mm. You know, it's it's they're a land Beautiful. of faith. They're very connected to their families, to each other, to the essence of life, Um. And they've kind of made it simple in a way, mm. even though there's lots of stuff that's complicated about Italy. They've got just the most painful bureaucracy, the most painful. It's like the people who set up the MyGov website run all of Italy. That's honestly <laughs> what it's like. It's the worst. It's the worst. Anyway, um, but on a, on a personal level, it would happen to us all the time. Mm. We were lost. We were starving. We were, and then suddenly, like a mirage, a restaurant, or we'd get to a restaurant and they were closed because you know they have the immutable closing hours. But then they'd see the children and they'd be like, oh, "All right, you come in." And then we end up having dinner with the family in the back of the restaurant. Or it was just always a faith affirming exercise. And faith is like those other muscles. The yeah. more you exercise it, the stronger it becomes. The more intuitive you become, the more relaxed you become because you are not this anxious, vibrating person like one of Madonna's personal assistants. <laughs> you are actually, uh, you feel supported, I guess, by everything. What's always struck me about you, which I think is such a beautiful trait, that you have this innate ability to step into the unknown and they say when you step into the unknown, you step into this field of all opportunities. And not many people would pack up their kids and having four of them. And in, as you talk about in the book, they weren't little kids. They're going through high school and all this kind of stuff. And as you said, you were obviously doing a radio show that was doing so well at the time, yet you still went and said, all right, guys, we're off. We're going to Italy for, for a year. Whilst most people would go, that sounds awesome. I'd love to do it, but would be crippled by fear and would never take that, that, that maybe they'd think it was a risk. How do you step over that fear factor and just go, okay, we're going to do it and leap into the unknown boundlessly? Well, I think there's always more reasons to not do things than to do them. Yeah. And... It was funny when I was writing this book and I was or attempting to write the book and I was flying in the olden days when we could fly, I was flying back from Italy to Australia for work for something, I think, or the other way around, whatever. I was flying somewhere and I was listening to a podcast by a writer called Stephen Pressfield, I think his name is, and he talked about this concept that was just for me so... Um, revelatory, like it explained to me how the whole world worked, starting with myself. Yeah. But when you embark on, he's talking specifically about writing, and he said, you will encounter resistance. Mm. And 
in any creative endeavour, I believe this to be true. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't like to have the status quo changed, including myself and yourself mm. and the people who love you and your parents don't want you to go away and your friends don't want you to go yes. away because then they have to readjust their, do you know what I mean? It's people so are always true. motivated by self-interest. And then you have guilt. Because you think, oh, my God, like I don't want to leave my parents. They'll be sad. Of course. And my father really cranked that up to the max, the old Dutchman. (laughs) He was shocking so that I actually had to shut him down by saying to him, Dad, you left your country and didn't see and saw your parents like twice in 40 years. Yeah. And you're going to begrudge me doing Mm. this. And dad, of course, because he was always so beautiful and pragmatic, totally took it. Yeah. Whereas my mother would be like, mum's a massive emotional manipulator of it. <laughs> like she's a master, that master. She'd be the, you know, when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. she she said, said to me, your father lies in the dark with tears streaming down his cheeks. Okay, mum. All right. So they were going all out to try and yes. stop us. Part of the resistance that this writer Stephen Pressfield was talking about. But what happens if, if you persist with something, the universe, what I, I don't know what we call it. I hate saying the universe because I feel like a footballer's <laughs> wife who's bought a Buddha statue at Bunnings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. But people on this podcast probably would or be able to understand but, what you're doing. Oh, of course they would. Of course <laughs> yeah. they would. But I just, I wish there was a better word yes, for it. Yes, no, I agree. The force of life. Yes, the force of life is nice. The force of life, the Holy Spirit. Yes, the <laughs> divine. Know? The divine. <laughs> then provides because you look at nature, nature is so creative and nature is so beautiful yeah. and nature is always changing. Absolutely. So the earth actually supports you in what you want. So if you persist and you reject the resistance or you keep pushing against the resistance, eventually the universe gives you assistance. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. When I heard him say this in my headphones on the flight to wherever it was, I totally understood because Mm. the greatest resistance you will ever meet is from yourself. Yeah. It's so interesting, Kate, because I'm so in the belief of when you close doors because the time is up, that allows for the new doors to open, but they won't yes. open. It's like the universe goes, I've, she's got too much on. Yes, We're not going to open yes. doors for her because we yes. don't want to overwhelm her. But as soon as you close those doors, then suddenly those ones that you want start opening. Yes, but you have to do that for yourself. Absolutely. You know, there's so many of us who, and I have done this in the past and probably will do it again in my in my future, that are waiting for the knock on the door, oh, here's your beautiful life. Yeah, yeah. Ah, guess what? Jeff Bezos is making them now. He's (laughs) delivered it to you (laughs) along with everything else. Yep, here it is. Do you want it on the porch? Oh, just chuck it over the fence. (laughs) That's honestly what we're waiting for. Yeah. You ought to be rescued. Yeah. The only person that's going to rescue you is you. The only person that can rescue you is you, yeah, really. It's true. And the only person that can give you a beautiful life is you. But mm. often we treat ourselves worse than we would treat anyone else that we yeah, loved. absolutely. We treat ourselves like we don't love us. 
we beat us like a rented mule, we shit talk us, we shit post us, we like, eh, you know, but things we wouldn't say or think about anybody else. We do to ourselves and we do that to our own dreams, our own desires, our own our own most secret inner child. So when you did decide to go to Italy and those doors opened for you, you were then obviously doing the show, as you said, remotely for a while, but then there got to a certain point where you said, no, it's time now to obviously close that chapter. Yes. And Husey said to you, but what are you going to do all day? Husey was obsessed with it. What are you going to do all day? Because, of course, my darling friend is a workaholic and I am not a workaholic. But trying to explain to a, a workaholic is that you don't want to work is almost impossible. Yeah. And so I would say to him, I don't, I, like I literally didn't know. I just knew that I said to him at this point we were going for a year and I'd already volunteered six months of it to work. Yeah. I say volunteered, but there was an, an amount of, you know, <laughs> it was like people, like us all getting the vaccination. There was a degree of coercion. Yes, of it course. It was for the best. Yes. It was for the best. But there was certainly a degree <laughs> of coercion, right? Anyway, um, I... I tried to explain to him that I would only have six months left of my precious year and then he said, come back in October. I'm like, then I would have only had, I would have essentially gone to the other side of the world, moved my, uprooted my whole family to have three months off and that would have been in school holidays with the kids because they have these these long school yeah. holidays in Italy. Um, so I had to fight for, and also I didn't want to fight with you. I love no. you. And I loved the radio station. I loved the job. I loved what we were doing. I just had to, I just had to not do it and see, as you say, what else comes through the door. And what came through the door was a lot of pasta, (laughs) a lot of holidays, reading, swimming, jumping off rocks, going to yoga, making new friends, going on day trips, eating at restaurants perched on the side of cliffs, overlooking oceans that are so blue you can barely imagine them, like finding little restaurants by rivers and just magic happened, magic. because. Just because because there was suddenly room for yeah. it, I guess. Well, that's it. And I wasn't tired. Mm. It's mm. funny when you don't get tired because you're absolutely loving that every everything that life mm. has to offer. Mm. And also there, there is that aspect, but also I literally was not getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So I wasn't <laughs> yeah, that's tired. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Was, Made sense, you know, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is probably really a hard question to answer, but out of everything that you did, what was one of the most magical moments that you had over there? Wow. It was, I don't think that they were big, well, they were big things, you know. I mean, one of the most magical things, because I'd never lived in Europe and I'd never done this standard, or not standard, but what a lot of Australians do where they go live in London or yes, they spend time. Yeah, yeah. I'd never really been to London. And um, 
I love how close the countries of Europe are mm. to each other. So I would, I love that I could, you know, go to Ibiza for a, for three days with and meet some girlfriends. And Peter and I went to Amsterdam for the weekend. Wow. What a pair of yeah. pigs. And we went to London, you know, everything's like an hour away. Yeah. Or an hour and a half. And that, I, and I, and, and another magical thing I think was all those countries and all those cultures together, which in Australia people are, I've noticed, scared to talk about race or culture. Yeah. They're really scared of it. And I think it's because we're so isolated, yeah. and, you know, don't have a history of always having been great in that regard. But go to Europe. Show me a country that doesn't have blood on their hands in Europe. Mm. And they're really conscious of it. And yet they seem to have this way of kind of working it out, um, at least this century. Um, and I love the difference. I just love the difference. We had run-ins with Germans and, oh, my God, we met drunk Russians and we danced with Lithuanians and Romanians and it was just so fantastic to have that that confluence mm. of the world suddenly to be living in that part of the world rather than where I'd always lived where yes. our culture's so um, thin yeah. by comparison. I agree. And something that you do so unbelievably well is I think you find a lot of the joy in, in moments but there's something, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's the idea of finding happiness through novelty. Oh, no. It's a big thing at the moment and I had someone on the podcast talk about it and when I was chatting with our mutual good friend, Sash, who's one of yes, your yes. old producers, we were talking about how you have this like vibrancy for life but the thing with you, even in Melbourne, she was saying that you're always about what's our new adventure. Yes. Let's go swimming in the ocean or let's yes. do this, let's do that. And again, it's that... It's always seeking new pleasure and that's the whole idea about this novelty and that's, they say, if you want to become happier straight away, go see novelty and that's what they say about travelling because there's a lot of novelty in travelling. Right. Like is it is it similar to the thinking that says you should never drive the same way to work I, Yeah, I would assume day. so. Right. It's that whole yeah. idea of always exposing yourself to some sort of novelty because otherwise that it's doing the same thing every day and then it's mundane and boring. But like those people who rotate their life partners yeah. every couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where does that come from? I know obviously we spoke about it in the podcast the last time you grew up in a Jehovah's Witness family and that, mm. I mean, I don't know if that had anything to do with it and being a bit repressed when you were obviously living like that. Where did you get that, that I feel like it's this real love for life and everything it has to offer? Uh, maybe it is the witnesses or maybe uh, this was a product of the witnesses as well, but an, an unwitting one that I grew up without television. Yeah. So maybe I had to learn to find things of interest around me with my tiny mind. So, uh, you know, I, I, I 
had to use my imagination, I guess, yes. or or I probably learned to observe more because I wasn't distracted by. Of course, now we have a myriad of screen yeah. options, but TV was just such a massive one that automatically made me different from everyone else I mm. knew because we didn't have a television. But then Dave O'Neill also says, the comedian Dave O'Neill says, I have a very low excitement threshold, <laughs> So, which is really handy. Yes. So I, I do, I just really, I like I just I, I just I just like doing things like a, when a girlfriend and I were away um, we were we were um, on the whale migration path apparently and I'm like I was so desperate to see a whale and I said to her um, and we were painting some outdoor furniture and I said and we had her speaker one of those portable speakers I said to her let's play whale music and try and lure the whales to us and we had a similar conversation after that where yes. she sort of said to me <laughs> most people probably wouldn't suggest that I'm like well how else are we going to lure a whale to <laughs> us it didn't work by the way although the next weekend someone the next beach over was kayaking and my girlfriend sent me a photo of them with a whale <laughs> breaching next no not breaching it's tail coming out of the water but i don't know i think i'm just always i'm never bored i i don't know i think i think it was the lack of other input and the only the most of the input i got was religious input mm. and um i didn't really like that so I think even as that was going in, I was fiddling with the circuitry, twisting it around and looking at it from a different angle or whatever. I don't know, but it's a, gosh, it's a gift. It served you well, Kate. It has served me well. It really has. I've, I haven't really thought about it in those terms, but it it is like, yeah, it just, it's, everything is great if you really bring it down to a, microscopic yeah, level <laughs> you know when a, they show the covid vaccine it's stunning <laughs> you know when they blow it up on the abc screen do you know what i mean so your perspective is everything on on how something is yeah generally yeah you know absolutely. people have some things that lay them low and i'm not one of those people to think that you can overcome some hurdles just with sheer will and mind power yes, of course. I know some people can I don't think I'm I could be one of those people but aside from that I think you can you know whoever it was who said if you if your glass is half full get a smaller glass it's such great advice such great advice yeah get a smaller glass and my glass is pretty small even though it's a giant jug of water. You talk in the book about one of the reasons that you wanted to spend time in Italy was obviously coming out of the other side of Lewis having cancer, which he's well now, thank God. Uh-huh. And we spoke about this in in the other episode I did with you that he was diagnosed with leukemia in 2009. Mm. 
Mm. And I wanted to touch on it again because you do write about it quite a bit in the book. I wanted to ask you when that obviously occurred and it was many years, Mm. in those, in the depth of how awful it was and there was one point where you mentioned where you actually thought he was going to die and he was he was six and I was thinking, oh, yes. my goodness, like my daughter's six and I like mm. it's, I mean, what mm. an awful thing mm. for you and your family to have gone through. Where do you find God in a, in a time like that? Do you even think that it's there? <sighs> Okay, that is interesting because that is everything, isn't it? Mm. Um, oh, there's God now. Can you hear the? Can you hear this thunder? Yeah. Um, we spent three and a half years at the hospital pursuing a positive outcome. It didn't always look like we were going to have a positive outcome. And in that time, we saw parents whose children didn't have a positive outcome. And I think, and part of me had to prepare myself, not that I ever allowed myself to dwell on that unthinkable possibility but I somehow had to also prepare myself to survive and not just be, have have my knees knocked out from under me. As had happened, you know, on this, it wasn't a, it wasn't a um, steady trajectory, you know, there were terrible troughs along Mm. the way. There were no peaks. (laughs) There were no peaks along the way. Um. And I talked to one of the mums there who lost her daughter and she said to me, and I, have ne- I haven't even really said this out loud before, but she said to me, I can't think about why I lost her. I just have to think that she was given to me for this time. And I think that's what you have to do. I don't know how you do that. But I think you have to go instead of thinking, oh, this is a terrible, of course it's terrible. But instead of dwelling on the terribility of it, you have to try and find something in you that goes, I have been given a gift. It was, you know, in our case, was it only going to be a six-year gift, was it? In the, in the case of the lady that I'm talking about, it was a 12-year gift. Yeah. Maybe that's what you do. I don't know. And, and praise be, we had a positive outcome and I'm very conscious of the fact that that's not the case. That will not be the case for people listening to this and obviously it's not the case as we ultimately live our lives, you know. But I think you have to go to that some level of trust in how things work that is almost superhuman mm. in its in its in the resolve it takes to get there but also maybe it's just when you're on your knees you know you're on your fucking knees mm. i think i think that is my path 
for that as I touch wood. And I think that is, I mean, how can you find comfort? But maybe that is where the comfort lies. For her, that's where the comfort lay. I think it's true. I mean, where where do you where do you find any answer or reasoning for why any of that is to occur? It just seems so cruel. Mm, mm. But parts of life are cruel, yeah, you know. It's, yeah. I don't want to get all Dolly Parton on you, but you ain't going to see a rainbow without the rain. It's true. It's true. You just like. Maybe that's a part of it. And I, we always tried to not be so, um, I don't know what the expression is for it, but people would say, oh, you must wonder why you, when we never once, yeah. never once wondered why, why us, why mm. me. Would you just never wondered that because it's so random. That's like going, why me who's had the beautiful life I've had? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that is what randomness is, given that it wasn't genetic and it wasn't, it was just, you know. Yeah. There's a beautiful story that you tell in the book, and it's about when Lewis was going in for his operation and because he was suddenly was going blind in in one eye. And you talk about this surgeon and Mm. you and, and Peter were lifting his tiny body onto a hospital mm. bed and the surgeon said to you, oh, it made me want to cry, um, mm. I will take good care of him, I promise. Mm. And when you reflect on that, it's such a beautiful thing. Mm. We are all here as humans to help each other and it reminded me there's a spiritual teacher who passed away many years ago called Ramdas. He was one of the greatest teachers and he said, we're all just walking <sighs> each other home. Ah, uh, uh, and yeah, I I just wonder what did you learn about human nature in that period, and especially when you're giving your little boy to this surgeon, mm. and just knowing in your heart that I'm sure you thought this this surgeon would do as as good as he could to help. I help really your boy trusted out. him. I think during the whole thing, through that whole experience with very few exceptions, we learnt how beautiful humans are. Humans are the greatest. We're so, uh, when we allow ourselves the animal in us, you know, the nurturing, the instinct, when we listen to our instincts, we're very lovely. Which is not to say we don't have baser instincts, but they don't generally tend to come out. Uh, with children's cancer, yeah. you know what I mean? People are generous and prone to fear. That's interesting, more fearful than, of course, that's something to be scared of, but uh, the more that you trust people, and this is a very hard one because when you trust people, someone will inevitably betray your trust and that is really painful. But mostly your trust will be repaid a hundredfold. 
Most people want to help. Most people want to do something good. Most people want the world to be better, not worse. When you present your soft underbelly to the world, and I had no armour when Lewis was sick, Mm. the world is very beautiful to you, like bittersweet beautiful. Can you tell us a story about the Mary McKillop bookmark? It's incredible. Oh, yes. So this was... um, People must think this is a very strange book about Italy. When when I, I told this story, I found myself at a lunch and, and what happened was in Italy, in Bologna, where we were living, our children went to the international school. Yeah. And there was a group of mothers, I'd like to say, and some fathers, of course, <laughs> but there were no fathers. They were all mothers on this WhatsApp group. And the WhatsApp group was just fabulous, was run by this American woman called Denise who seemed like she seemed a bit sort of um, she had the colouring of like a little woodland creature, you know, like beige and like, you know. But she was just incredible. So she always knew everything that was happening and blah, blah, blah. And she used to organise these weekly lunches for Anyone could come. Yeah. Anyone could come. And because I was working, I didn't get to many of these lunches. And I went to, I said to Peter one day, I've really got to make an effort. So I went with another girlfriend, this Australian friend, who by coincidence, they were also living in Bologna, also taking a gap year. Yeah. They had been there. They left before we left, you know, but um, Rachel her name was. So Rachel came to my apartment and then we walked down together and there was one of the few Italian women who had come to these lunches, even though there were a lot of Italian parents at the international school because a lot of the Italians wanted their kids to learn English. Anyway, we're sitting at the this restaurant. I haven't met Antonella before. Maybe I've met her but I haven't had lunch with her before. And we're next to this church that's got a relic, a holy relic in it, and it's um, an embalmed saint. Apparently she's, I don't know, she's hundreds of years old. I know. Vogue's not pushing it down the runway anytime <laughs> soon, but she's, you know, yeah. she's embalmed in the church and you can go see her. And we were talking about that. And then something came up about saints. And then Rachel, the Australian, said to Antonella, oh, we have our own saint in Australia now, we have St. Mary McKillop. And for some reason, I just, I don't know why I started to tell this story. Like why, why did I tell anyone this? Once again, I hadn't said it before. I. So what happened was when Lewis went blind, when you were talking about earlier, he went blind in one eye and they thought he had relapsed. They thought his leukaemia had come back, which in the middle of treatment is the worst, right? means the chemo's not working and the radiation hasn't worked. And anyway, friends of ours rallied of every faith, mum and dad's Christian friends, our Persian Muslim babysitter, our Jewish friends, just Catholics. Catholics came out of the woodwork, (laughs) mate, the Catholics. Anyway. And one of our girlfriends, 
husband's was her ex-husband was a really devout Catholic and he started going to see this nun that he had known since he was little and she gave him a bookmark to give to Lewis and he also did a fasting, I don't know about Catholicism, but it was a fasting 30-day, like a penance thing, which was amazing because he worked as a motorbike courier and he started at 6 o'clock in the morning and he was fasting for Lewis till 6 o'clock at night while riding a motorbike. Anyway, he went to see the nun and the nun gave us a bookmark to give to Lewis and a cross made out of paper mosaic, right? And so we, I just tucked the bookmark in a Harry Potter book we were reading. We were at the hospital. It was just, I hardly had the energy for anything, you know. And Lewis had been having all these tests and they thought that he was going to need a bone marrow transplant. And we went in to see our doctor, our oncologist, and we were waiting. When we went in, Lewis was so weak and so bald and so tiny. I was sort of half carrying him. He weighed 18 kilos, you know, he was seven years old. And I sort of half, because I was lifting my, my bag spilt and this bookmark fell out onto the floor. And our doctor who was like Doctors are very literal, mm. narrow people in my experience, which yeah. is, does not speak to the fact that they're often brilliant at what they do, but they're not the sort of people that you're going to bump into at Rainbow Serpent <laughs> Dancing. You know what I mean? <laughs> they like, they're very, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I dropped the bag and Lewis's book fell out and the bookmark fell on the ground and... Our doctor picked up and went, what's this? Right? And I was going in there to hear, like, the worst news ever and I was just like, I can't even begin to. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed that I was hoping that I had taken this talisman or, I don't know, people who have some sort of faith or even though that wasn't necessarily mine, are often made to feel ashamed of it in this world. absolutely. He wasn't, by the way. I had just laid this on him. And then I was like, oh, a friend gave it to us. He gave it. He picked it up and I was just watching him to see. I was like a bit coiled, ready for for a bit of a swipe, you know, because I'm an idiot whose son is dying and I hope that there's a miracle, you know. Mm. Anyway, he said, he looked at the picture really carefully. It's an old black and white photo, grainy. I don't imagine there's a lot of photos of Mary McKillop. And he said, you know, she, you know, to become a saint, you have to have performed two miracles. And I was like, oh, I don't, do, do you? I, I didn't know. He goes, and one of her miracles she performed at this children's hospital. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe any of it. Anyway, so here I am in this restaurant in Italy. I'm telling this story. Why am I telling this story? So I'm telling Rachel, who knows a little bit of me about Australia. I don't know if she knew any of that. But Antonella I've never met before, who's an Italian in, you know, a country jam-packed with saints. 
And Antonella said, and we all had tears in our eyes, you know, we were in this little huddle in our little cone. She said, I know this Mary McKillop very well. I have written a book about her. Wow. Mm. And that, my friends, is a miracle. That's a minor miracle. What are the odds of all the people, of all the gin joints in all of Bologna, that I happen to be with her? It's extraordinary. And I like, I mean, I believe in miracles. I don't think it's as woo-woo as we think it is. No, I don't think it is either. And it also is your it's your definition of what a miracle is yeah. as well. Like to me, that was a miracle that that happened, yeah. that that encounter happened. Yeah. Like how could that possibly have happened? Yeah. Who's written a book about Mary McKillop, <laughs> the Australian saint in Italy? Yeah. Well, that just doesn't happen. Anyway, and and who has a doctor who didn't even want to do a vitamin D test on my son? That's how yes. I, he was anti-woo-woo. Yeah. And then t- gives me that beautiful gift when I was expecting. Yeah. Just mm. when you needed it most. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, when you speak about meeting um, all those beautiful women and then you obviously end up making a lot of friends when you're in Italy, but you do mm. point out something which I think is so true, how it was so easy for the children to make friends, but it took such a while for you as adults to make friends. Yes. Why is that? Well, when you're a child, that's all you have to do. Yeah. And, you know, once again, when we were at the children's hospital, there was a, a little thing written on the on the corridor, in one of the corridors that I always would read when I went past, and it said, fish swim, birds fly, children play. Yeah, it's beautiful. And when you play, you draw people to you. Mm. And children play. That's what they do. So they, if you watch them infiltrate a new group, they hang around a little bit on the outside. Unless they're really little. If they're really little, they go right in and take the blocks. But adults, we have a lot of, we don't play so much. Mm. So, you know, we got responsibilities and we got and we guard and we, and we don't like to look at them and, oh, she's wearing high heels and I think women wear high heels or whatever. Yeah. You know, guys, it's just like, oh, he's wearing a shirt and chinos. That's all they've got. (laughs) But for women, we're very multifaceted. Yeah. Our myriad ways of being a woman. And consequently, we have to read all those in someone else. As soon as we meet them, we're processing, not even in a judgmental pejorative way, a survival way because we're the gatherers, you know. We couldn't run away. We weren't the hunters. We had to stay and make it work, you know. Yeah, it's true. I think that's why so many people are drawn to you, Kate, because you have such a playful nature about yourself. Well, it was funny before we went to, when we, before we moved to Italy, I was talking to Peter one day and in one of my, it wasn't, it was a moment of 
no, it wasn't even uncertainty. It was just like, oh, my goodness, it's going to be so different moving to a country where nobody knows me. Whereas, yeah. and not that I'm hugely widely known here, but I get recognised yeah. a lot. And often that's very positive. You know, there's a seat in a restaurant or there's, you know, people yeah. are nice, you know. But I was going somewhere where no one would recognise me, no one would know me at all. And I said to Peter, oh, that'll be funny to not have anyone know me. I think we were in a restaurant at the time and that was what prompted the conversation. So they'd found a table for us, you know, whatever, because we'd never book. We're hopeless at booking. And Peter said to me, he just laughed. He's very, he's got very few words, Peter, probably because I use so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, extraordinary people are extraordinary anywhere. Which was such a lovely thing because he's of few words. Sometimes I'm starved for a compliment. So I was like, what? He thinks I'm extraordinary. But you know what? That is true. It's true. That is just true. So even in a different language and whatever, and even with my terrible Italian and people responded to the essence of who we were. In fact, we were reduced to the essence of us because we didn't have any, I didn't have enough words to have any artifice. Yeah. I didn't have, a lot of the time I didn't have any excess energy to have any artifice. I was just like, you know. Kate, I wanted to touch on COVID because obviously in Italy it was like those restrictions were some of the harshest (coughs) in the world. And they came second only to China. Yes. That was what was so shocking. Because Mm. I remember from hearing you on the radio and obviously following you on Instagram and all the different ways I heard you talk about it, but you could only go to the supermarket on certain days. You weren't even allowed to. If people had dogs, they weren't even allowed to walk no. them. There was like that. You no. were barely allowed outside. What? The kids didn't go outside for, for months. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how did, you, uh, how did you manage during that time with four kids at home? Luckily, we had moved from our first apartment, which was really small, in which Lewis, our son, and Sunday, our daughter, um, our eldest son and daughter, shared a room. We only it only had three bedrooms. Luckily, we had moved out of our um, that apartment and found our sort of forever home, um, and it was huge. It was in an old palazzo, an old palace. Not like a French-style palace, but, you know, big gated wooden gates and stunning, now all apartments. And so we had this apartment that went right across the middle floor and it was huge. That was the luckiest thing that happened, really. I mean, aside from the fact that we, you know, made friends in the apartment. But if we had gone into lockdown in that first apartment, where Sunday and Lewis were already at each other like Mm. a cat and dog, um, you know, one wanted the window open and one wanted the window closed. Mm. There was a bar downstairs and there'd be noise and the yeah. street cleaners would come and, rah, 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 and cigarette smoke blowing into their room from the, you know, parties and anyway. So we had space and space was the key. It meant that when we had to homeschool, the kids could all set up somewhere. And then we, we just 
I really resisted at the start, like every, like we all did. But after a while, I about three weeks in, I went, actually, I'm quite enjoying this. Once I knew that there wasn't fear, like once I knew food was going to be okay, yeah. food was my big overriding. You know, I had six people to feed. Yeah, of course. And then I actually went, oh, this is, oh, I think I like this. Did you like it? Peter was never happier, never happier than than having his modern wife at home all the time cooking and looking after everyone. Isn't that amazing? And he's modern, you know. He's, yeah. he's, there's no, but it was just a nice, it had a, at one stage he said, we're like farmers. We see the same people every day. We get up early, we go to bed early, and we see the same people around the table every day. And there was something very simple and uh, comforting about that, even as it was like, how long is this going to go on? None of us knew. So we we just had to surrender. And once again, there's the lesson, surrender. Mm. When you surrender, things become much more bearable. Much more bearable. What do you miss most about Italy? Oh, wow. Uh, The beauty of it, Mm. the beauty. And when I talk about the beauty, I don't mean the physical beauty of the country um, because Australia is so beautiful, but I mean their uh, cultural established built beauty. Mm that you can live like the parts of the Palazzo, our Palazzo apartment were from the 1500s. Wow. In Australia, you can't have a California bungalow survive on a street without someone knocking it down and putting up some grey bunker. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, their love of old things. Peter and I would say all the time, well, I would say to Peter, (laughs) How did they know not to knock down their old buildings? Yeah, it's so how true. did they know? They've got medieval villages still with the walls around them, and but they love old. They value old things. Yeah. they value their old people differently than we do. And Italy is a country that celebrates youth but venerates age. Yeah, whereas here, I think we worship youth. A girlfriend who came to visit when we were in Italy said to me, isn't it funny, in Australia they want you to be a middle-aged woman. In Italy they want you to be beautiful. Mm. And it really stayed with me because all the time you would see older women shopping in H&M You don't see see nanas shopping in H&M in Australia. It is something about the aliveness of them that I miss. Yes. And the beauty, the love of beauty, whereas now I'm back here. I'm I'm no better than I was. I'm back in my trackies (laughs) and I wear thongs and, you know. Yeah. I I miss that elevation that, that 
you, I tried to find in myself to match them because they were just so, they're so articulate in beauty and yeah. it's not a shallow, no, it's not a shallow pursuit at all. It's, a, it's like they appreciate the beauty in beauty. Yes. And you make everything beautiful. Yeah. It's like, why would you not make it beautiful? Like they're so perplexed by certain things that yeah. I just found it adorable, almost like like they just couldn't understand. They couldn't understand why you'd go out with wet hair. Yes. Couldn't understand it. Why would you do that? Couldn't understand why people would wear thongs anywhere other than at a swimming pool. Yeah. Why would you do that? And the in brackets, it's almost like why would you do that in brackets to yourself? Yeah. Why do you not think you're worthy of being like treated the best? Yeah. It was very interesting, but never in a um, – they never articulated. They're like yes. very um, – It's not shallow. No, but just it's a nourishing. It's yeah. very nourishing. That's what I miss. Yes. And also I miss um, pasta uh, and just there. going in and aperitivo yeah. and, you know. Kate, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Probably my mother's advice. I don't always live by it, but she would always say, she well, she still does, as she's American, you know, um, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And because I'm a prone to, as Shakespeare would say, a waspish tongue, um, that's always been really good for me. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Ah, that that which I least want to do is what I most need to do. And that I learn, that covers a myriad of things, mainly exercise. (laughs) 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 Really exercise and being tidy. Yes. Mm. Mm. What's your greatest hope for society today? That people are less fearful and can entertain ideas that are challenging to them without having to snidely dismiss them or belittle the person who's Mm. brought the idea. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? Life itself. Kate Langbrook, you are one of the most magnificent people. You are the true meaning of love and beauty in this world. Oh, you're so lovely. What about my waspish tongue? (laughs) (laughs) As always, thank you so much for the conversation. such an honour. Can I say the work that you're doing here is so accessible but so profound. It's a proper gift. You've got a proper gift. Thank you, Kate. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly. 
where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.